Good morning, all. Um, we are going to be in Exodus 5, verses 1 through 12. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest for their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. This is the word of the Lord. Jason Green was the senior editor of Pitchfork. It's a popular online publication covered, um, they covered like indie rock bands. He and his wife Stacy, they lived in New York City with their two-year-old Greta. I think we have a picture of her as well. He writes about how Greta was absolutely everything to them. One weekend, Greta was having a sleepover with Grandma on the Upper West Side. She'd do that a lot. And Grandma and Greta were sitting outside on a park bench. Just a normal day near Central Park when all of a sudden, from a nearby windowsill, a brick fell and hit Greta and killed her instantly. It was a freak accident. In the years that followed, Jason wrote a memoir about the maze of grief. He writes how he was never really able to find his way out of it. He wrote also how if there is a God, he's a monster. He's the cruel taker of life and the permitter of evil. If there is a God, he is to blame for Greta's tragic story and every other one like it. Tyler Staten, he's a pastor and author, he talks about how his youngest son, Amos, was in the hospital for the first 30 days after his birth with his chest cut open because his heart didn't form right in the womb and was being operated on. And in the limbo of whether his newborn son would live or die, and also while reading Jason's memoir, Staten says he noticed how different their perspectives on God were. You see, for Green, he was a monster. But for Staten, he was his only hope. 
who's his lifeline, who's the creator of good, the sustainer of life, the one fighting against cosmic evil and death, two very different perspectives of God. Stephen Fry, an outspoken atheist and comedian, when asked what he would say if he found upon dying that God was real, his immediate response was, I would say bone cancer in children? What is that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there's such misery that's not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? In his book, A Grace Disguised, Jerry Sitzer writes about the loss of his wife and two of his four children in an accident involving a drunk driver, and he writes about present pain and loss and suffering, but he writes about how God walked alongside of them. Both would say they're talking about the same God, but for Sitzer and Fry, very different perspectives on who he is. You see, for many in my generation and younger, they have completely deconstructed their faith because they cannot come to see a God for who he really is because of abuse in the church. And hear me, I have tremendous empathy for you. It's not right, truly, as a church leader, I am so sorry. There is a lot of pain that comes with that, but there are a lot of us myself included, that have had similar experiences. But we see God differently. In fact, I had one youth pastor even fat shame me before. (laughs) But I've not written off Jesus. Because in my mind's eye, I see a loving father who is about the redemption of all things, who loves me deeply and wants me to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Completely different perspectives. How can that be? As A.W. Tozer put it, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is he disappointed? Angry? Is he disinterested? the big man upstairs? Is he out to get you, cruel, mean-minded, capricious, stupid, as Fry would say? Or do you see him as loving, compassionate, calling you to greater acts of love and holiness, adventure, obedience, and joy because he alone is what the depths of your soul is aching for? Would you even believe me if I said he calls you follower of Jesus his friend? You see, as a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and Exodus is the defining event where God reveals who he is, who he really is to his people. And for some, Exodus is an affirmation of who God is, who we've imagined him to be, but for others, he is a confrontation, more disorienting than comforting because it's a challenge of who we have imagined him to be. But either is important because all of us, listen, we need to let God speak for himself. Not what we've imagined him to be, 
but let him introduce himself to us. And this is so important because the way that you interact with the world, how you interpret the events of your life, how you deal with life's blessings and tragedies, all of it is defined and determined by who you believe God is. This is the goal of Exodus, to show us that God has made himself known, but not only that, that we can actually know him, who he really is, not just things about him, but know him. And so today's teaching, we're gonna journey through a few passages. We're gonna see in these passages this beginning of this confrontation of Yahweh and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and how God chooses to make himself known. Let's start in chapter five, verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. Is anybody thinking of Prince of Egypt? Okay, there's more 90s kids in here than I thought. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. So right off the bat, what is the reason that Moses, on behalf of God, is wanting the Israelites to leave? Why is he saying, let my people go? Worship. Whoever said that? I don't know. You, I, may, I pretend that you said that. The purpose of release is worship. Let my people go so they can celebrate a festival in my honor. This is not just freedom for freedom's sake. God cares about the oppressed. We've established this over and over. God is the one who hears and acts, but this is not a get out of hell free card. As many people approach Jesus, they love him as savior, but they cannot stand him as Lord. Remember, we made the point in Exodus that God did not just want to rescue Israel. He wanted to transform them. He's on mission to get Israel out of Egypt, yes, but also to get Egypt out of Israel. He's on mission to rescue you from sin, death, and hell, but also to get sin, death, and hell out of you. The point is that Israel would become a people who instead of serving Pharaoh, they serve Yahweh. What they're doing with Pharaoh, God wants them to do for him, but it's gonna be a whole lot different because for Pharaoh, the Israelites were slaves. But with God, they're free. Serving Pharaoh, they're seen as less than, but serving God, they're given dignity, even royalty. Look at Exodus 19. And I think we think when we're giving up, like serving these sin masters, we're like losing in some way. You ever thought that? Like our fun <laughs> or our autonomy? But the thing about sin is you aren't really free or autonomous. You might think you are, but you are enslaved. This is what Christopher read last week, Romans 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one you obey? Whether it's sin that leads to death or to obedience or the Lord that leads to righteousness. You see, serving Yahweh, you're free. You're the most free. In fact, you're the most human. This is why Yahweh wants them to leave with Pharaoh, their slaves, but Yahweh wants to liberate his people and make them worshipers. 
so they can pursue what he created them for. Verse two, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, so I won't let them go. And then Moses and Aaron said, verse three, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. And then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous. You're stopping them from working. So shocker, Pharaoh says, no. But his no is very specific. Did you catch that? It's not because he's gonna miss his labor force. It's because he doesn't know Yahweh. Why would I let them go? I don't know this God that you talk about. Basically, I'm not really afraid of him or his authority. He's no threat to me or my authority. So knowing Yahweh is the key, I want you to hold on to that because we're gonna parse that out here in a little bit. But also, why a three-day trip? What is the point of asking this? Are they lying? Like, is this a cover for like, yeah, we're just gonna go take three days, BRB, and then like hightail it out? Like, what, what is happening there? Well, a couple possibilities. One, this could be a mini like Sinai moment where God is revealing himself in kind of a truncated way to show kind of a future hope. But what I think is more what's going on is God knows Pharaoh is going to say no. And he called that back in Exodus 3. So he's making a point here. He wants to show Moses and Aaron and the Israelites who Pharaoh really is. See, Pharaoh would not even agree to a little mini vacay. No Sabbath for you. What does this tell us about Pharaoh? Well, one, he's exploiting them. They don't have value or dignity. His unwillingness to grant this shows just how hard-hearted he really is, how far gone and evil he is. He's blinded by his own ego and power, and people only exist for his pleasure and his power. And there's a couple clues in the text that the narrator is showing us to drive home this point to show how evil Pharaoh really is. One is in verse three when it says, now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to our God or he might strike us with plagues or with the sword. What is that about? God's going to just kill off his people if they don't go? Well, for one here, the Israelites are identifying themselves as God's people. They're saying they need to leave the land in order to properly worship him. So again, in an ancient Near Eastern mindset, this is where this was written, this way of thinking was normal. If you belonged to a certain deity, that deity had specific demands and requests of you, and if you did not hold on to those, he could smite you. That's just kind of the idea of the thinking in the ancient Near East. And this would have been bad for Pharaoh not to let them go. If he was a good ancient Near Eastern leader, it would have been in his best interest for his workforce to be healthy and not like 
plagued with disease, right? I mean, that makes sense, right? But also, it would be in his best interest not to tick off another deity, because there was a lot of belief that deities had a lot of say of how the land would go, whether it would be like fruitful or not. So just from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, Pharaoh is a terrible diplomat. When you get to the Israelites' exile in Babylon, do you remember King Cyrus? Cyrus, when he took over Babylon, he lets the Israelites go back. Why? Because he's not trying to tick off their God. He's saying, yes, it makes sense. You all know how to worship that deity. It's not because he loved Yahweh. It's because he's a good diplomat. So Pharaoh's not. He's power hungry, he's blinded by selfishness, and he's also just foolish. But he's also abusive. Look at verse four. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. So we've got this like link back to the Pharaoh in chapter one. Do you remember he was afraid of the Hebrews because they were numerous? He was afraid that they would overtake the Egyptians. So he's a xenophobiac for sure. He's blinded by his own like fear and racism and he enslaves people and controls them. But if you notice in verse four, he says, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from the work? Where Moses and Aaron are asking for time off, Pharaoh's going to shift the conversation so it's not about his stinginess, but he's blaming them for their laziness. You see that? You're the problem. You're keeping people from doing their work. Verse six, then the same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce their quota. They're lazy. That's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. No, make the work harder for the people so they can keep working and pay no attention to the lies. You see this? He sees them as the problem. Unfortunately, that's classic power dynamic. The problem isn't him, it's them, and he justifies his behavior. And then in verse 12, we get this subtle detail here. And so the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble and use for their straw. If you were an ancient Israelite hearer, this would have jogged a memory, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, verse three, they said to each other, come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used the brick instead of the stone, tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered. So Pharaoh is telling them to make bricks, no straw, to build his city. And they have to scatter and go get it. So the point of connecting these two stories together is to show that not only Pharaoh is a maniac and abusive and foolish, but he is evil maximized. The connection to the Tower of Babel story reveals that Pharaoh is the true enemy of God. 
You see, the Tower of Babel is humans' attempts to be fully autonomous from God. Let us make a name for ourselves, and Pharaoh is doing just that. I ain't scared of your God. He is nothing to me, I am God. I have full power and authority, and there's nothing you or this Yahweh or anyone could do about it. It's the cry of the serpent in Genesis 3, and it's the cry of humans that say, I know what's best for myself. I don't need God. Functionally, what you're saying there is, I am God. So this link to Genesis 11, something is about to happen. Because remember, I told you that knowing Yahweh was the key to this. Because in verse two, Pharaoh says, I don't know Yahweh. Pharaoh, you're gonna learn today. You're about to be enlightened because everything Yahweh is about to do over the next several chapters for Israel and Egypt and Pharaoh is to know who Yahweh is to know his power, his authority over Pharaoh, over evil, and over the snake. But let's back up to Exodus 4. I wanna show you how Yahweh is going to demonstrate his authority over Pharaoh through Moses. It's very particular. These signs give us some clues into what exactly Yahweh is doing. So Exodus 4, verse one. Then Moses answered, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff. Well, the Lord said, well, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake and he ran from it. (laughs) I would have done the same. So Moses comes back to Egypt. That's where we are in Exodus 5. But he's not empty handed. He has a staff. And the staff is not just something that Moses had that God uses, but it is significant in Egyptian context. Look at this pic of uh, King Tut. So King Tut, this is his sarcophagus, and it's picturing him with both a staff and a whip. This is very common for pharaohs to be pictured with. You can see that it's a shepherd's staff. Because there was a belief in some sense in Egypt that Pharaoh was to be considered the shepherd of the nation. And so Moses, who's just been a shepherd, now is called to be a shepherd of the people of Israel to lead them out into the wilderness and he's gonna come back and confront the shepherd of Egypt to let the sheep go. But this is more than just some symbol of one shepherd versus another, but this staff becomes a flipping snake. If you'll notice on King Tut's headdress there, there's two snakes. Snakes were important in Egyptian theology and practice. This is where in Exodus 7, this gets really interesting. Let's read it, Exodus 7, verse 8. And then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, so this is, Uh, After Exodus 5, this is another confrontation with uh, Yahweh and Pharaoh. When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it'll become a a snake, and it became a snake. Verse 11, Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. That's a hard one to say back to back. The Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Interesting. 
And each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he wouldn't listen to them. The Bible, man, it's crazy. But consider what's going on. The snake in Egypt was a sign of royal authority. And so Pharaoh, the royal son of Egypt, the descendant of the gods, the shepherd of a nation, and he's bested. It wasn't really close, but he's bested by this deity that he says, I'm not scared. But again, there's a lot more going on here because remember, the author of Exodus has consistently been showing us this is more than just some event that happened a long, long time ago. This is a story of how God is going to deal with evil in the world. Because do we remember what God promised Adam and Eve when they fell to sin? I will send a deliverer, a snake crusher. Genesis 3, verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So do you see all these images and themes being kind of textured and layered on top of each other? We already know that Pharaoh is evil personified. The Satan and human evil maximized just kind of manifested into one character. The deceiver with a crafty scheme, the man with a literal head or snake on his head is about to be crushed by Yahweh. And one day, the true snake crusher, the true seed of the woman will crush sin, death, and evil on a cross and swallow up death. Do you see that? You better believe Paul had that image in mind. 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, come on, it's too good. Death will be swallowed up in sin, it's nasty sting, hallelujah. This staff becomes a key player then in the chapters to come. They not only initiate five of the 10 plagues, but they also part a sea. They bring water from a rock and it being held up defeats the Amalekites in chapter 17. So keep your eyes and ears clued on this thing. Because this is how Yahweh is showing his full authority over the snake, our hero and deliverer. That's one way that Yahweh is methodically dealing with Pharaoh. The other is a repeated phrase that comes up in Exodus. It's this claim that God is going to bring them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, Exodus 6.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. So this phrase, it appears a lot in Exodus, but also throughout the Bible. If you're curious, you can take a picture of that or whatever. But the idea here is that when this comes up in Exodus, but also throughout the scriptures, it's to remind the Israelites what Yahweh did to Pharaoh. Because it's a way to show that Yahweh beats Pharaoh 
with his own trademark move. Look at this picture of the Narmer palette. It's an image of Pharaoh Narmer, who has a mace in one hand and some guy's like head in another hand. And if you notice this, he's stretching his arm out. This is the standard pose that you would find Pharaohs in for 3,000 years. Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh showing his mighty hand in an outstretched arm. Oh, Pharaoh, you are going to learn today. I will show you what it looks like to have a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember, God's not just after sneaking the Israelites out of Egypt. Could he have gotten them out faster? Sure, of course he could have. But over and over, like 10 times with the plagues, he is showing up and he's giving people a chance to see that he is greater. He knows Pharaoh's heart is too hard. Again, he called that back in Exodus 3. He knows the king's heart, but he's showing everyone else, I want you to see, I want you to see this person. And now Yahweh has come to beat the king with his own move. He's methodically destroying the power structures of Egypt, showing his full authority over the gods and men beating the oppressors because he's the one who hears and cares. He will not let injustice go unpunished and he's after everyone knowing who he is. And you're either with him or you're against him. Because again, this is the purpose of the confrontation that everyone knows who Yahweh really is. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I don't know him. But look at how the plagues are described as to why Yahweh does this. The one with the blood, by this you will know that I am Yahweh. The frogs, so that you may know there is no one like Yahweh. The flies, so that you will know that I, Yahweh, am in this land. The hail, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Also the hail, so that you may know the earth is Yahweh's. The locusts, so that you may know that I am Yahweh. The firstborn, so that you will know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Guys, this whole thing is about knowing who God is. Reminds me of Romans 9, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I may display my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God has made himself known. And he is relentless in getting across what he wants to get across. He's better. He's the answers to what you're searching for, your restless pursuit of happiness and contentment. He's it. Because he made your heart and he sustains your breath. The great mystery of the scriptures is that God can be both incomprehensible and knowable. He's incomprehensible. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Oh, the depths 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for he is, or who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Yes, he's incomprehensible, but he's also knowable. Second Peter 1, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness. God has given access to what is true about himself, reality, and ourselves that he is what's true, that his way leads to life. But knowing him is not just some intellectual ascent. Why? Because even demons know him. Even demons believe. So it's not packing your head. I love this from Barbara Taylor. While it may seem more respectable to approach faith as an intellectual exercise or more satisfying to approach it as an emotional one, our relationship to God is not, just a, is not simply a matter of what we think or how we feel. It's more comprehensive than that. It's a full-bodied relationship in which mind and heart, spirit and flesh are converted to a new way of experiencing and responding to the world. I love this at the end. She says, we're learning to see the world, each other and ourselves as God sees us and to live as if God's reality were the only one that mattered. This is really important that you see to get the life Jesus has on offer to know him. It is knowing his truth and following his way. Remember, God did not just want to rescue Israel and then bounce, like, cool, saved you. Good luck. Do what you want. No, he wanted to work with them, transform them, and create in them a heart of worship. Yes, to get them out of Egypt, but to get Egypt out of them. Unfortunately, though, many of us still view following Jesus as some means to an end like a ticket to heaven, to nice feelings, to a successful, upwardly mobile life, and so on. We still don't get it. Guys, he is the end. The reward for following Jesus is Jesus. It's the sheer joy of friendship with him. Jesus himself says in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, I've called you friends. Let that sink in, the God of the universe, the snake crusher, the incomprehensible God says to those who follow him, he calls you friend. Like he actually likes you. Do you believe that? <laughs> it's so simple, but why do we live if it's, it's, it's not? He Likes spending time with you. He wants you to participate in his work of bringing heaven on earth, doing the things that he did, but do we feel the same way? Do we want to spend time with him like we do with Netflix? As one author put it, I used to think of people who just spent all their time in prayer as crazy. I just go do something. Like those monks and nuns who grew up their normal lives doing little else but pray. But you see, what if we're the ones who are unhinged? 
We who would rather binge Netflix or go shopping or play fantasy football than commune with the creator. We would rather give up the vast majority of our time to some job that will spit us out when we're no longer useful to the bottom line. We who choose to spend hours every day on our phones and yet claim we don't have time for God. Okay, we who choose hours every day on these stupid things rather than claim that we have time for God. What if? I got the warranty, I think. What if we're the ones who have lost touch with reality? We who are wasting our lives. Guys, is your heart waking up yet? Is there a flame in your soul starting to burn with desire for friendship with Jesus? As 1 Timothy 6 says, you can take hold of the life that is truly life, the life that Jesus died to make possible. You can know God. That reality is possible. He's not absent. He's close. He can be knowable and he invites us to let him tell us who he really is and to come and know him, not just things about him, him. Tozer again, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us because the way you interact with the world Interpret the events of your life, the tragedy and blessing, all of it is defined by who you believe God is. So let's stand together. I just wanna give you an exercise, a practice this week, um, just in prayer. I've got a litany of questions here and they're formatted very terribly. Um, so hopefully you can see them. You can put those up. Yeah, I made it. You can use these if you want. If not, it's cool. But I just, I want you to just very honestly in the quiet, would you ask the Lord, do I know you? <laughs> or just about you? Do you consult Jesus in your day to day decisions or are you unilaterally making them? How do you think Jesus sees you? Is he disappointed, angry, disinterested, or do you see him as loving? calling you to greater acts of faith and love and obedience and holiness. Even now, just to give you a space just to think on that before we go to the table.